0: For our second message today, we have a sermon from Mr. Curtis Whiteley, entitled, Brotherly Love. Mr. Whiteley. Good afternoon. brought my laptop up here. I'm having some, not trusting my, my iPad today. It's being a little finicky, so. Uh, in case uh, that happens, I'll have to grab this uh, uh, laptop. So, as was mentioned, the title of my message today is Brotherly Love. And that's the topic, love, from the very beginning of our service today until now. And it's interesting for me because this message was not planned. I didn't look at the Bible study uh, today to see you know, what we were talking about and try to play off of that. Uh, but rather uh, a few weeks ago I was supposed to speak in the end of January and you know I'm in First Thessalonians right now we're doing a series it's actually something I started last year last spring I believe and so uh, I I was ill and I couldn't speak and so Matt uh, I called Matt and I think Steve filled in for me that week and so the next week I was supposed to speak but we had a snow day and so this week comes about, and I'm thinking, man, does God still not want me to give this message? Because I'm thinking, we have snow again, you know, is it going to melt in time? And so, it's interesting that, you know, the topic today is brotherly love, and we're going to get into that, we're going to get into 1 Thessalonians. Uh, and it's so connected to what we talked about in the first part of our service today. The only bad part about having a message ready, so far in advance for me at least, is that when I originally was going to give this message, I had like 8 pages of notes. A month later, as of this week, as of last night, I had 16 pages. So I just kept adding to it all these different ideas, and if you're like me when it comes to studying the Bible, I just I am always just, you know, relooking at it and looking at other things. And so I did decide this morning I was going to cover 1 Thessalonians the 4th chapter verses 9 through 12, but I'm actually just going to cover verses 9 and 10, which I think is fitting uh, for what we talked about in the first part of the message. And actually, going back to last week, if you were here and we were studying James, the last part of chapter 1, we started studying the first part of chapter uh, chapter 2 today. But last week, we we were doing our Bible study on James. We discussed James chapter 1 verse 27 where James says pure and undefiled religion before God and the father is this to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world and so we read that passage and I actually did respond to a question on that and I don't know if you were here but I just I couldn't help but also bring it into this message into my introduction because when I When we looked at this passage and N.T. Wright had a question on it, I was interested that James, and I've done a study on James if you remember, but I never thought about it in this way before because he, he couples this idea of pure and undefiled religion with concern for some of the most vulnerable members of society. Orphans, widows. And I could not help but think of how often Jesus gave scathing rebukes all throughout the Gospels, as we see, to those who were considered the religious leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees. And he would do this because of their overt focus on the outward righteousness. What they look like, for people to call them rabbi, for people to think, oh, look how good they follow the Torah, look how wise they are. They know the Scriptures above and beyond anyone else, and if only I could be as righteous as they are. And so we see this all throughout the Gospels, but specifically if you were to read chapter 23 of the Matthew's Gospel, we see that Jesus actually calls these leaders hypocrites who are like whitewashed tombs. Beautiful on the outside, right? adorned with, you know, metallic marbling and all the different things that they would have, but inside they were full of dead bones and uncleanness. And Jesus actually even says in verse 20, He says that even so you also outwardly appear, this is of chapter 23 of Matthew's Gospel, even so you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. And the reason that I thought that this passage in relation to what James said is I think that this is so true when it comes to religion and when it comes to our faith sometimes that we get so focused on, you know, what religiosity looks like, you know, what being righteous looks like, and we start to forget, we start Falling into that trap of neglecting what Jesus says is the weightier matters of the law. Matthew 23:23, where he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. And the reason I brought this out last week was because when James says, pure and unfiled religion is this to visit orphans and widows, is because in Jesus' day, in the days of the New Testament, we see that there was this focus, as the religious leaders demonstrated, which Jesus rebuked, right, on that outward righteous appearance, where it almost made not all Jews, but those religious leaders, those in power, it made them no different than anyone in the world, specifically that key characteristic of pride, because it was all about themselves. And in the process, they missed the mark. They missed the mark of what the law was all about, which was that love that you're supposed to have for your fellow human being, for your fellow brethren. And that's why I wanted to bring this out as an introduction to what Paul says here in chapter 4. And beginning in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, the last message I gave, I think, was on December 25th, and we talked about how Paul starts to establish some clear standards of community conduct, holiness and honor and walking righteously, walking in a way that pleases God and how we are called to be holy in a world that's not holy and specifically he talks about basic human nature. Things that the Gentile world, the outsiders, the unbelievers fell trapped to. Sexual immorality, idolatry and things like that. And in verse 9, he starts talking about a different topic, even though it's completely related to what Paul begins to talk about in this entire letter, which is faith, walking worthily of your calling. And so we're going to just read all four passages, even though we're only going to go over two. We're going to read chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. And he starts and he says, But concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another, and indeed you do so toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more, and that you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands, as we commanded you. Verse 12, he says that you may walk properly toward those who are outside and that you may lack nothing. And so this is kind of a two-part series within the series of 1 Thessalonians for the sake of time, and I was thinking the Bible study typically goes long, so I originally was going to cover all four of these verses, but I just want to think about this idea of brotherly love, and I have one main point today, and it's very, very basic, but it's important, Continue in brotherly love. And we're going to ask the question and answer, hopefully, what brotherly love is. Because beginning in verse 9, Paul, he opens up this topic. And for some reason, Paul feels the need to bring up this idea, even though he says that the Thessalonians, for the most part, practice this principle well. And we can speculate what was going on. We know that Paul establishes this community, leaves is going throughout different cities in what's considered Greece, I guess you would say. And he's in Corinth, and he sends Timothy to see how the Thessalonians are doing. And upon Timothy's report back, he writes this letter to the Thessalonians. And so perhaps Timothy observed something or was asked something about this idea of brotherly love. Or maybe he saw some behaviors going on where he felt like most of the community is doing really well, but there needs to be a little bit of this address and actually this is a a literary tool that Paul's using it's 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 forgot the term exactly but it's a device that they use where they say that I don't need to tell you about this but basically they do tell you about it and it's similar to maybe whenever you're you know mom and dad or you know or you're talking to your kid you can probably remember both as a parent if you're a parent as well as if when you were a kid, when your parents says, like, I'm not even going to tell you about how you decided not to empty the dishwasher like I told you. But of course, the whole emphasis is on exactly that. It's a self-contradicting statement, but it's 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 a literary device that's used here by Paul. So this term, brotherly love, is actually the Greek word Philadelphia. And we obviously, we know what the word Philadelphia means, right? Because we live in a country that has a city called Philadelphia that has a lot of Uh, rich American history uh, in this city, and it's typically nicknamed what? The city of brotherly love, right? And so it's a location of a lot of different things in our American history. And in the New Testament, there's also another city of Philadelphia. And in fact, if you were to go to Revelation and read the beginning parts of Revelation, there's that presentation of the seven churches of Revelation, right? And Philadelphia is considered the faithful church, the church that really didn't have any guile. We even have a history in our own faith tradition where some people called themselves or or considered the era that they lived in as the the era of Philadelphia because they kind of thought of themselves pretty highly. And so we understand what this word is. We've heard it before. Moontz, who's Robert Moontz, he is a, a Greek expositor. He's one I go to a lot of times for different Greek words. He defines this word succinctly as love of the Christian brotherhood. And of course included in that idea of brotherhood is you know both male and female. So we see that in the New Testament a lot where there's this word brothers. But there's, there's not the use of sisters. And so assumed is brothers and sisters. We do, we're just uh, living in an age where when you said brothers it's including everyone. And so this idea of. Uh, Philadelphia is love of the Christian brotherhood and describing, or yeah, love of the Christian brotherhood. And so Philadelphia, the related word to that in Greek is phileo. And phileo is the common word in classical Greek for showing love, affection, hospitality. Likewise, the word phileo is used in the New Testament oftentimes to describe the tender affection that God the Father has toward his son, Jesus Christ. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all he does. We see that in John, the fifth chapter, verse 20. That's that word phileo, and that's where Philadelphia comes from. Now, in the New Testament times, in this world, this word Philadelphia was typically used before the time of the New Testament, before Christianity, simply to refer to brothers and sisters and their love for each other, for siblings. But during the Christian times in the first century, we see that the word becomes associated with Christians who had love for each other. And of course, there was no physical relationship between these Christians, but they started calling each other brothers and sisters. They started looking at each other as brethren. We see that this becomes a habit by our New Testament authors where we see brothers or brethren. That's the word that we typically refer to each other as. Just in this letter alone... Brother is used upwards of 16 times. So you can see that Paul has this familial language that he uses all throughout the letter. And of course, this concept is rooted in the understanding of God as the Father, which links all of us in this Christian faith into a family. I like this quote by N.T. Wright. In his Paul for Everyone series, his commentary, he says, The first Christians in Jerusalem sold their property, pooled their resources, and shared the money thus gained among themselves because they viewed each other as family. And so we are a Christian community. We're brethren. And when we say that, it's literal because we literally are a family. We have God the Father, of course as our god and this idea of love for brethren it's a consistent theme we see all throughout the new testament we see this in first john 4 verse 21 when john says and this commandment we have from him that he who loves god must also love his brother he who loves god must also love his brother and last week we just we sung a song right Uh, if you were here and you might not remember this, Reggie would. And the song is after that passage that we see in John the 13th chapter, verse 35, where Jesus says, and this by this they will know that you are my followers because they will see, and I'm paraphrasing, the love that you have for one another. And so this term, brotherly love, is actually not used very much in the New Testament. It's used here and in four other spots. It's used here in verse 9, but also Paul uses it in Romans, and it's also used in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 1, as well as uh, 1 Peter and 2 Peter. And so, when I was thinking about this, and I was thinking about this idea of being a family, you know, in this faith tradition, we've we've heard about that a lot. We've heard about different ways of us being a family. We've heard about, you know, what the purpose of God is in creating humankind. And there's different people that have, you know, had different studies and presented different ideas about that. But when I was studying this uh, this today and this last week and last month, really, I was thinking about growing up in this faith. And I can remember, as many of you can, I'm 37, so I don't have memories of the 19, you know, 60s and 70s Feast of Tabernacles that people would go to with 15,000, 20,000 people. But I do remember, for most of my young childhood, we would go to a Feast of Tabernacles that wasn't very far away, Western Hills. And there would be five or 600 people there. And so as I got a little older, and of course I grew up in this faith, and when I became serious... About my faith in Christ and became baptized. I do remember. I'll, I'll never forget the first uh, Feast of Tabernacles that I went to after my baptism. I was baptized in two thousand four, and I think Labor Day, uh, well Memorial Day weekend, because it was actually on Pentecost. But that fall, the Feast of Tabernacles, Christian Educational Ministries (CEM) was supposed to have their traditional Florida. Uh, Feast of Tabernacles and I believe that year because of a hurricane, I can't remember which one, they moved it to Eureka Springs. And so my first, ba- you know, my first Feast of Tabernacles uh, was after my baptism was still probably one of the biggest feasts I had ever been to. But the reason I'm telling you about this is because I remember that first time of going off somewhere, right? We were going and you know, I think there was probably seven, 800 people there still. Uh, I think they probably would have had more if it was still in Florida, but I remember the feeling of being in this huge auditorium with all of these strangers, but this natural feeling like this is my family, like this connection that I had with these individuals. They were brethren, and it was unique because I had never felt it quite like that. Of course, yes, I would come to church, and you develop relationships with each other, and you you grow up just kind of knowing each other, and I'd look up to the different adults, and you know, they were a part of my life, and I really appreciate kind of the, the, the you know, the, the, the way that they were towards me, many of the older members, because they were always so encouraging and always took an interest in me. But this was unique, because here I am, the first time being at a feast where I'm really consciously aware and in tune with what the feast is all about. And of course, yes, I had the head knowledge before that about what the feast was about, but you, I didn't have that spiritual transformation take place, so it was different. And I just remember going to the feast and being among all of these strangers. Never, you know, Some of them maybe I had seen before, but most of them I hadn't. And just feeling this natural connection to all of them. In the second part of verse 9, Paul gives the reason why he does not need to belabor the point of brotherly love. And this becomes something that I think is very important for us to remember. He says he doesn't need to do this because they, the Thessalonians themselves... We're taught by God to love one another. Taught by God. That's an interesting concept because we're going to see that this is the only time in the New Testament that we see this word. It's a special word, a word that Paul probably made up. It's a phrase that Paul uses that's in the Greek, theodidactos. Theodidactos. And according to Robert Thomas, the author of the Expositor Bible Commentary, the word described a divine relationship through the indwelling Holy Spirit. Theodactos. Now, if you were to go, and not to bore you guys, but there are, when people use these terms like Paul, and it's the first time we ever see this word used, and then after that we see it used, because obviously they're using the word from Paul we see that he combines two Greek words. He combines the Greek noun teach or teaching, which is the word didak, and it means doctrine, instruction, and he couples it with the Greek word for God, which is theos. So literally, Paul is combining these two words, didak and theos, and creating a word basically saying that they are God taught. They're God taught. And there's two possible ways that people have looked at what Paul exactly, is, what he means by this. On the surface, we can understand, okay, he means that somehow these Thessalonians, they're taught directly by God. But what is inspiring Paul? What concepts, what theology, I guess, is he drawing from to present this idea? There's two specific theories, and I think they both work, and they're both rooted in, of course, the scriptures of the Old Testament. The first one is understanding that they are living in the messianic age. The first way of understanding this is by looking at Isaiah, the 54th chapter, verse 13. There's a famous passage in Isaiah where Isaiah is talking about the future, talking about the messianic age, and he says, All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. And Jesus himself quotes this passage of Isaiah in John 6, verse 45, when he says, It is written in the prophets, of course, Isaiah, the 54th chapter, but he's probably also alluding to another uh, prophet. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father, and related to this, It's possible that Jesus is even thinking about the famous passage that we know of in the prophets, Jeremiah the 31st chapter, verse 33 and 34, where we see that Jeremiah he prophesies that time, that you know, that time of the Messiah, that time where he will, you know, God will write his law, write his instructions on the hearts of men. And so we see that in this, of course, you know, the messianic age, when we look at these prophets, we know that there's, you know, duality in it. We know that there's a first coming of Christ and a second coming. And we know that in the scriptures that we read, like in the Old Testament, we see this and sometimes we look at it and we can see that there's some duality. For example, we know that ultimately the houses of Jacob, right? All right, the houses of Israel, the houses of Judah will are going to come into this plan. And that, of course, apparently has not been fulfilled and completed yet. But it is something that will happen. But so, Paul seems to be, you know, grabbing this idea. And, of course, we know that Paul later will write in 1 Corinthians. And he'll still kind of, you know, I guess borrow from these ideas where he talks about, you know, how, you know, those who have the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of God, those are the ones that will know the truth and the things of God. And without it... A person's not enabled to understand the things of God. So related to this idea is the idea of the, the, the Spirit. We know that John, the, chapter 14, verse 25 and 26, Jesus tells us that we're going to get this Spirit. And we know that we have gotten this Spirit. We know that on the day of Pentecost, the fulfillment of this came. That this Helper is going to help bring into remembrance All of those things that Jesus taught. And of course, we didn't live in the age where Jesus was actually alive, but we live in an age where we still, as Christians, it's that spirit that's enabling us. And so, going on, the second idea, the second idea that possibly Paul is drawing from, it was an idea that we talked about in the Bible study. It's the idea of the golden rule. Uh, Jesus directly, we know, talks about this idea of the golden rule. We talked about it today. Loving your neighbor as yourself. This is the basic idea to all Christians, even if it's not something we practice all the time. You know, we talked about, you know, how wonderful it would be if everyone practiced this rule. And how it would be, basically, the solution to so many things. The concept of loving one's neighbor has its roots, of course, in the Old Testament. Leviticus, the 19th chapter, verse 18, is a passage that we see that's housed in all different practical ways how we can love our neighbor. And, of course, it's something that was quoted and magnified by Jesus himself when he had the teaching on the law and the passages such as Matthew, the 22nd chapter, verse 34 through 40. I'm actually not going to read that. I'm going to read the counterpart to that. I'm going to go let's go to mark the 12th chapter. I decided to switch because I like the idea that's coming out. It's the same same story. Mark the 12th chapter. Verse 28. So Jesus is getting ready to kind of expound upon the the golden rule. And he has this scribe come to him. In verse 28 it says, verse 28 it says to 34. "Uh, Then one of the scribes came and having heard them reasoning together, perceived that he had answered them well. He asked them, which is the first commandment of all? Jesus answered the first of all the commandments is hear O Israel the Lord our God the Lord is one and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul with all your mind and with all your strength this is the first commandment and the second like it is this uh, in the second is like it is this you shall love your neighbor as yourself there is no other commandment greater than these so the scribe said to him, I really like what the scribe says. And this is why I decided to use Matthew 12 instead of one of the other corresponding chapters from Matthew or Luke. So the scribe said to him, well said, teacher, you have spoken the truth. For there is one God and there is no other but he. And to love him with the heart, with the understanding, uh, with, and to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the soul... And with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is more than the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And Jesus' response to this, now when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said, You are not far from the kingdom of God. You are not far from the kingdom of God. And what that speaks to me and the way I interpret that is, is that Jesus is seeing someone that is coming close to understanding really what the heart of the law was all about. Really what the whole point of God's instruction to mankind, which is couched in this unbelievable love that God has for us and has demonstrated through his Son. And we see this idea of love all throughout the New Testament. I know it's cliche, but when we read the Scriptures... The reason I say this is, is I think it's so often easy to get wrapped up into, do I have the right doctrine? Do I have the right interpretation? Do I have the right you know, uh, prophetic overview or outlook on what's going to happen? I remember when I was first baptized, going back to those years, one of those things, and I still have to fight it these days, is getting wrapped up in the whole head knowledge thing. You know, knowledge of the scriptures is very important. Studying the scriptures is important, but sometimes you can almost make an idol of it. And I know that might sound strange, but where you almost become like more interle- more interested in the intellectual side of studying theology and studying the scriptures, and you start to forget about you know the whole part about the you know heart appropriation aspect of it. You know, the whole point of the knowledge is to change your mind and cut you to the heart and, and, and be uh, lived out to change your actions. And so I think it's easy to kind of get wrapped up in that sometimes. And sometimes it's easy to maybe scoff. Oh, yeah, of course. Of course we're supposed to love our brother. Of course we're supposed to, you know, focus on those things. But we have to ask the question, do we? Or a better question If we take what Jesus says, they will know you, for they'll know that you're my disciples because of the love that you have for one another. So, people on the outside, do they see that? Is that proof there, like Jesus said, would be there if we truly were his disciples? And so, I like this quote by Robert Thomas, and sometimes when I find a quote, I just have to, you know, share it with us. Uh, Robert Thomas is the author of the Expositor's Bible Commentary. He says that conversion. Believers become lifelong pupils as the spirit spirit bears inner witness to love within the Christian family. No external stimulus is necessary. Mutual love among Christians is an inbred quality. And it's true. But what's also true to that is that there is also an old man still living in us that has its own inbred qualities that we have to fight against. Another quote by Howard Marshall from the Word Biblical Commentary. Exhortation is not needed because the readers have experienced an inward divine compulsion to love one another. In other words, Paul ascribes her growth in love to the sanctifying spirit or power of the spirit. And so when we read these scriptures, what we learn is is that Paul, right before he talks about verse 9, he talks about the Holy Spirit and we know that that is the mechanism... In which Jesus, in which the Father is changing us, is teaching us, is letting us understand, of course. And we can go back to Jesus' words of how the Spirit will give you, will teach you these things. And we have a gift. And with that, with that Spirit is changing our spiritual, I guess you would say, DNA to having inclinations to want to love and want to have love for each other. And so a lot of times people get wrapped up in different things about how, you know, well, you don't really need the law. You don't really need those things. You know, Jesus fulfilled the law. And so I was reading this this week and I was even, you know, thinking about what James has to say. And it's interesting because when we see Jesus fulfill the law, and he absolutely did, but it's not to fulfill in terms of doing away that it doesn't matter, but he fulfilled it. He came and he was the embodiment of that law. He embodied that principle of love of God and love of neighbor. And in that embodiment, he, that individual, who is the example that we are to follow, is the person, the individual, God the Father in Christ, that spirit in us, that active agent that's creating that new creature in us. Just a quick textual note here. This is a continual process. It's not something that has happened one time. The actual... Uh, verb here in verse 9 for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another and Paul uses the phrase that, that verb are in, present, in a present tense manner it's in present form it's not you yourselves were but you yourselves are it's a continual thing God's spirit is continually living in us changing us growing that creature teaching us it isn't just like, you know, it's not just like an, you know, USB drive that gets plugged into our brain, gets plugged into our heart, and we download it, like at baptism, and we have everything we need. And every now and then, we might need an update. It's a gradual process that God is working in us and creating in us. Verse 10, the very first part of verse 10, I want to go ahead and read verse 10 again. Read verse 10. Verse 10 says, And indeed you do so toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more. And the proof that the Thessalonians had shown this love of God through that brotherly love can be seen by the reports, that, by the reports of them from those within the region. Thessalonia got a reputation for demonstrating brotherly love, for helping out sister churches, other congregations in the same region. And we don't know exactly what churches they were, uh, but we can probably guess that those churches in this arena, in this area of Macedonia, and further to the south was Greece, that the Thessalonians were helping. And they became a model church in doing so. We also see later in the second letter to Corinthians, Paul alludes to... In chapter 8, verses 1 through 15, he alludes to the generosity of the Macedonian churches. And, of course, there's a strong likelihood that he's thinking about the Thessalonians uh, whenever he says this. Uh, I think that a good applicable point for this section for us as Christians is to think of ourselves in this congregation not as just a congregation on an island. You know, we talk about you know working with other churches. We talk about working with other ministries and things like that. And I think that an applicable point that we can see, and I think that we've practiced this, is the importance of maintaining and strengthening our relationship with other congregations, other ministries, other individuals of like you know that have like faith, as well as other individuals that might not have exactly our faith, but you know do have faith in Christ and do you know, to their best of their ability to try to, you know, uh, be Christians and and uphold the principles of the Bible. I think it's very important for us to join hands with individuals like that. Not, of course, when we have matters that differ theologically. We can still have maybe some of our, you know, theological differences. And there's no doubt in my mind that that happened in the first century, that there were congregations that maybe put more emphasis on certain things than others. Of course, there were examples where you know, some congregations went off the rails, like we see maybe you know, in, in, in Colossians that got mixed up with Gnosticism and things like that. But I think it's really important for us to understand that we are not just a congregation on an island. This isn't Christianity. It doesn't stop here. And I think we all understand that in the Tulsa Church of God. We're a part of a global body of believers that are a part of Christ's body. And so we need to make sure that we take advantage of opportunities of hospitality, opportunities of encouragement, opportunities to help other congregations that might need be in genuine need, whether that be, of course, through prayer, whether that be, of course, through uh, sometimes financial uh, help and assistance. And, and we have done that, and we've done that, and I think that it's important for us to continue doing that and to pray about it and for God to help bring those needs to us if we are able to maybe help. And it doesn't have to be financial, it can be in other ways. And so I think that it's really important for us. And I say this because uh, it might sound like common sense, but there is a history sometimes in our faith tradition where churches don't do well together. They don't do well working together. And I don't mean that we need to you know, change what we're doing and join another, that's not what I'm saying. What I mean is, is having a heart that's such, we're not just at an individual level that we're thinking about our brothers and sisters and, and helping them and having brotherly love, but at a congregational level as well, having a attitude of brotherly love. The last part of chapter, uh, or verse 10 says, continue in this more and more and more. This is something Paul's already said before in the very beginning part of this chapter. And we talked about walking worthily. And You've already done well, but continue to do so even more and more and more. And so despite this showing of love to each other, to the other congregations in Macedonia, Paul encourages them to go over and beyond, to go above. I like this quote from, again, Robert Thomas, where he says, More love is always potential, is always a potentiality. For Christians, because the ultimate, the example of Christ Himself, is infinite. It can only be approached, not fully reached. And that's true. You know, there's going to be a day where we meet and we get that full measure of Christ and that complete unity when Christ comes back and we inherit that immortality that we're promised. There's going to be a day, but we understand. That this is a journey, that this is a race. And that crown is not something that we get midway or, you know, two-thirds of the way. But it will come at the very end when Christ returns. And those who are dead will rise. And we'll talk about that in the next section of 1 Thessalonians. And, of course, those who are alive will meet him in the era. And we will finally have that perfected unity, that perfected, you know, Love of Christ without the guile, without the old man still tying us down. I'd like to close by reading a passage from First Ephesians chapter 4. Let's read the first six verses. A little later, Paul says this. This is a, letter, a later letter from 1 Thessalonians. He says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. And that's what brotherly love looks at. Does it mean that you can't, we can't ever have differences? Does it mean that we can't ever get frustrated with each other? Siblings are going to do that, right? We're going to argue sometimes, and, and of course, we're going to not agree. We're going to have differences. But at the end of the day, we have to understand that the person that we're arguing with, the person that we're frustrated with, is a child of God, just like you're a child of God. And so that love has to be able to you know, be strong enough. If it's truly brotherly love, it's going to overcome any difference that might come. Verse 2, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord and one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. And so brotherly love, it transcends everything, right? Because we understand the reality of our faith, our calling, of one Christ, one Lord, one Father, one Spirit, one baptism transcends all the differences that we may have we may be from different cultures we may have different languages we may have you know different ways or you know it might look different the way we do church and someone else does church either down the street you know a couple states over or in a different country but we're all together a part of this brethren this body of Christ and we're to show that brotherhood that that brotherly love so with this I'd like to conclude by just letting us know that we need to make sure that we put Philadelphia brotherly love as a priority in our lives. Let us remember that our fellow brethren are children of our Father and treat them as such. When one of us is in need, let us make sure that we make it a priority to uphold that brother or sister. And in doing so, we will be practicing what Jesus, our elder brother and Lord, the ultimate example of Philadelphia love did for all of us. Also in doing this, we will not only be upholding each other, but we will be demonstrating to the world that we truly are children of the living God who live by what our Lord has called us to.